0: with the sermon portion of today. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Larry, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Life Church. Uh, we, a few weeks ago, we finished the sermon series going through the book of Acts, and then next week, we're going to start a new sermon series. It's called Putting Your Life in Order, and uh, the basic gist is, you know, sometimes we, um, uh, our lives are kind of jumbled up. We are disordered. Our emotions are disordered. Our priorities are disordered, and our relationships are disordered, and so the, the basic concept is we're going to talk about how the Christian faith helps us to put all of these aspects in order. But today we're doing a one-off sermon, and one-off sermons are, there are times when I often just get to share what uh, I feel like God has been teaching me and laying on my heart recently, so I'll be doing that today. Today we are going to be based in John chapter 5, 1-18, through 18, and the sermon is titled, Your View of God is Too Small. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this chance you've given us to dive into your Word and to explore it, to excavate it, and to see what you have in store for us. Uh, We ask that uh, our eyes and our minds and our hearts will be open and receptive to what you have to share. And uh, I pray that we will leave this place Uh, different than the way we were when we first walked in. Thank you for who you are, what you do for us, among us, through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The early years of the Christian life, they're often marked by excitement and passion. Uh, But at some point, many Christians, they start to feel this, they start to experience this phase of stagnancy and of dryness and uh, it's like they hit this plateau, and they don't know where to go from there. And they often ask themselves, what am I doing wrong? Why isn't this thing working anymore the way it used to? And they start to look for ways to take their faith to the next level. For some folks, you know, there's different ways people, this is where the branches start, people take different directions. For some people, they discover... Speaking in tongues, that's the thing that they do to take their faith in the next level. For some people, they dive into issues of social justice. That's the thing they do to take their faith to the next For others, they undergo a theological deconstruction or recalibration. They, their theology changes in some way. And so for me, this happened uh, when I was in college and I became reformed. Now, uh, maybe if, you don't, if you're not familiar with this concept, basically Reformed theology, it can be defined in different ways, but to me at its heart, it's this idea that God is in charge of everything, and everything is not about me, but it's about God. Um, the Bible's not about me, it's about God. Justification, and sanctification, glorification, these things are not about me, they're about God. And I, of course, benefit, uh, we are most satisfied when uh, we are, when God is most glorified, and so we benefit, but God, is the center, he takes center stage, he's the main character, not me, and so he gets all the glory, and my joy is not the focus. And so, when I went through this sort of theological transformation, if you will, uh, Reformed theology, it provided for me this holistic paradigm uh, through which I read the Bible, through which I understood God, through which I understood the church, and I ate it all up. I loved it, and in a sense, in my mind, I felt like I had leveled up. I had become like a level two Christian. Okay, but here's what happens often when Christians feel like they leveled up. And this isn't just Reformed theology. This is sort of all, all of these transitions that people take. Here's what often happens. Many of them, including my former self, uh, they dive headfirst into this new subculture because the thing with all of these theological movements and tribes is they all have these subcultures, and in these subcultures you have your approved list of pastors, your approved list of books, approved list of conferences and podcasts and so on, and you sort of just immerse yourself in this world for a while, and you functionally you cut off contact with all of the Christians, okay, so that's sort of what I did, and gradually. I started to think. I don't know if I would have said this out loud, but I started to think that this subculture of Christian was of Christianity was really the only way to do Christianity. This is the only legit version of Christianity today. So I wouldn't say outwardly that other Christians weren't real Christians, but I sort of developed my own, you know, uh, array of lingo to draw a boundary between my kind of Christian and these other kinds of Christians. And so I might say, so this church over here, this is a solid church, or this is a legit church, or this is a gospel-centered church, and these were just all code words for saying these were also reformed churches, okay? And then these churches over here, they were unbiblical, or they were liberal, or they were compromised, and so that was just my way of saying these were not reformed churches, all right? And then I would sort of, uh, you know, I would not only want to convert people to Christianity, but I would want to convert people to Reformed Christianity. So that's what I would do, okay? And I remember my, you know, my freshman year of college, uh, this upperclassman sat me down, actually. He actually did this with me. He, he, he made a list of here are all the biblical solid churches and college ministries in the area, and here's a list of the compromised, uh, what was the word he used? Uh, shady, he used the word shady shady churches and college ministries, and you shouldn't go there. So anyways, I was living in this world for a few years, and during this time, you know, I, I think my, my view of God did get bigger um, as I started to understand his sovereignty and his power and his authority. But I think in another sense, looking back now, ironically, my view of God also got smaller because I was adopting this theological grid by which I would view everybody and view the church and view theology, view the Bible, And everything, sort of, every every time I read the Bible, it would just filter through my grid. And naturally, I started to miss out on things in the Bible that didn't fit that grid. I started to miss out on aspects of God, aspects of the church that didn't fit that grid. In other words, I was putting God in a box. You know, there's an old saying in Judaism that goes, The Torah has 70 faces. The Torah is the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and the basic idea is if you were to look at the Scriptures from this angle, you might come away with this perspective. If you were to look at it from this angle, you'd come away from it with that, that perspective. There, there are a, there's one Bible, but there are a variety of interpretation methods, and as a result, you can see different things at different times in different circumstances. The Scriptures, in a sense, are a living text, and God can use the same words on a page to reveal himself in different ways to different people. It doesn't mean that truth is relative. Okay, I'm not saying truth is relative. What I mean is God is so complex, so multifaceted, that you can't just boil him down to a theological grid. If you have a whole community of different people with different perspectives, different experiences, different personalities, then they view the text in different ways and together, collectively, you come to a fuller understanding of who God is. So here's the danger with a lot of these theological subcultures. And that was sort of wrapped up in. I'm not knocking Reformed theology, by the way. just you know. But this is just one of the effects of some of these theological subcultures. Oftentimes, they only see one of the faces of God. They only see one of the faces of God. They reduce a complex God to an image they've constructed for themselves, and they refuse to allow God to be God. Another way you can put it is, they make God in their own image. They create God in their own image. They stuff uh, stuff God into this box they've created, and they come up with all sorts of rules for God. This is who God is, and this is who God isn't, and this is what God can do, and this is what God can't do. So they have all these rules, And sometimes, when God operates outside of these rules, they miss it. And in fact, they're they're even opposed to it sometimes. They think, oh, this must be satanic, this must be demonic, this must be against God's will. And so they're blind to when God actually works outside of their box because their view of God is too small. In today's passage, um, which we will get to, okay, uh, it's John chapter 5, and there are two different parties here who have put God in a box, there's a man who's unable to walk, and then there are these Jewish leaders. And we'll talk about these two parties one at a time. And both of these parties, they seem worlds apart at first, but they actually have the same issue, which is that they, are, they have this theological grid of God and they're unable to see initially that God is, work, is, that God is able and willing to work outside of this theological grid. So let's start off one by one. Okay, let's talk about this man unable to walk. Let's go to John chapter five, Starting from verse 1. Sometime later Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Okay, and then here's a sort of this interesting fact. Now for some of you, if you're reading the Bible, in some Bible versions, you'll have a verse 4, and others of you, you won't have a verse 4. And the reason why is because—actually, um, I'm going to read it first. If you do have it, it might say something to the effect of, From time to time, an angel of the Lord will come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, will be cured of whatever disease they have. So you might have something like that, all right? So what happens—this actually happens a few times, especially in the New Testament, where— um, uh, a lot of the Bibles that we had, the English translations of the Bible for most of history would have this verse, but as we do more archaeology and things like that, we would discover really old manuscripts that don't have this verse, all right? And so we sort of are like, oh, why do, why do we have this verse? Why do these old manuscripts not have this verse? And so most scholars, they would conclude that the original Bible didn't have this verse, but somewhere along the way, maybe a scholar, maybe a copyist, maybe a, you know, some church leader put in this uh, caption, if you will, or maybe it's sort of like, here's a note to fill in the context about what's going on, and then later this got actually copied into the Bible. It was assumed it was part of the original text. So this happens a few times. That's just a little nerdy fun nugget for you all, okay? Anyways, so we don't know exactly uh, how often this happened, but it seemed like, you know, whoever felt like they had the authority to put this note in, they probably knew what was going on. An angel would regularly come and stir the water of this pool, and then it would sort of be like this foot race, okay? Whoever would get, get into the pool first, they would be healed, all right? So these folks, just imagine the scene, all right? They would be spending all day, all night, hanging out by the pool for the off chance that maybe an angel that day would stir the waters so that they could maybe participate in this race so that maybe one of them could be healed, all right? That's the life they're living. It's almost like... Um, you know someone buying a lot of ticket today you know most people who are not that desperate they don't really buy a lot of tickets okay it's oftentimes the people who aren't doing well they buy a lot a lotto of tickets and it's sort of the same philosophy they just their life is so desperate they don't have any opportunities elsewhere there's no hope for them elsewhere so they might as well spend the whole time or, or spend the whole money in the lot ticket example for the off chance that maybe deliverance will come So these folks, they're just waiting around at at this pool for years. And uh, and another thing to to recognize is, you know, in today's culture, if you are blind or lame or paralyzed, there are significant disadvantages for you. But we've also progressed enough as a culture that um, you can accomplish some pretty significant things. Um, A lot of folks who who have disabilities in our culture, they can contribute immensely to our society. Some of them, they do have stable jobs. Some of them, they're able to maintain hobbies. Some of them, they're able to participate in advocacy in different ways. And so uh, our world is very different from first-century Palestine, in which it was basically impossible to do any of those things if you were blind, lame, or paralyzed. Um, You were functionally social outcasts. You were often looked down upon, and many people assumed that you were deserving of your condition because God is punishing you in some way. And so that was sort of the environment. And so imagine this, okay, you have all these travelers coming to Jerusalem for this celebratory Jewish festival. Everybody is overjoyed, and and meanwhile, you have this group of downtrodden, lonely, social outcasts, and they're just hanging out by the pool. So that's the scene. And then Jesus notices one person, this is verse five, one who was one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, 38 years is a long time. I mean, this person became unable to walk before Jesus was even born. Jesus didn't even live 38 years here on earth. So, I mean, that's a long time, all right? And that's just a tremendous lesson on patience. But as a side note, I want to talk about another thing. So a lot of Jewish readers, if they were to read this at the time, read the Gospel of of John. The number thirty-eight years might have stuck out to them, because thirty-eight years, according to Deuteronomy two, this is the number of years that the people of Israel spent wandering around in the wilderness in Mount Sinai. Okay, so this is just sort of a fun thing that's sort of interesting. Okay, a long time ago, before this content, before the story, the people of Israel they were set free from slavery, and they went to the desert. They received the Mosaic Law, the the, the Law of Moses. And then they didn't listen to it, they rebelled, and so they had to wander around in the desert for 38 years, all right? And then there was a new leader named Joshua who led them into the promised land where they experienced rest. And so John, the author here, is doing something that's sort of, he's making this fascinating parallel because here's this man, he's essentially been living in the wilderness, symbolically, for 38 years, and he meets a man named Jesus, by the way, in the original Hebrew, Joshua and Jesus are the same name, okay? Okay. And Jesus will heal him, and as we later will see, on the Sabbath day, which is a day of rest. And so so John is sort of subtly letting us know that Jesus is like this new Joshua. He's leading us out of our spiritual wilderness, in which we were encumbered by the law, into this land of rest. And so it's sort of this beautiful imagery. But anyways, maybe some of you feel like this man. Maybe some of you feel like you're in the wilderness for a very long time. It might not have been 38 years. It might be more or less, okay? But you're in this wilderness for a very long time. And maybe you're sort of, you put all your eggs in this basket of maybe you're just sitting by this pool and you're waiting for deliverance. And it's almost like you've given up on all hope. Maybe, and I don't know what God's timing is, maybe Jesus will show up one day and he's going to radically transform your life. Maybe he will lead you into a place of rest, so keep holding on. Anyways, let's keep going. Okay, verse six, I love this. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Okay, maybe you're wondering, what kind of question is that? Of course he wants to get well. He's been laying there for 38 years. What else would we do? Okay, of course he wants to get well. But here's the subtle thing about getting well, okay? Some people who are not well, who say they want to get well, actually deep down inside, they don't mind not getting well. They're just content with where they're at. Um, Some people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography, if they were presented with the opportunity to get well, they may say they actually want to quit, but they don't actually follow through. Some people may say stuff like, you know what, you know, I'm not doing really well spiritually, you know, I need to read the Bible more often, I need to pray more often. But when push comes to shove, when the opportunity comes around, they don't follow through. They don't show up to Bible study. Some people say, you know what, I know sharing my faith is an important part of my Christian journey, but when they have the opportunity, they don't share their faith, they clam up, and they they don't choose the path of getting well. And why is that? Oftentimes, you know, we fear change, we fear commitment, we fear the unknown, and we say, I know we should do this, I know I should do this, I know this is the right thing to do, but deep down inside, we say, I I just can't. I don't want to do it. I feel pretty content with where I'm at. This just seems like too hard of an effort. It's like we subconsciously decided to just be the same the rest of our lives the day the person we were yesterday is going to be the person we're going to be tomorrow and if that's you I want to invite you to imitate what this person did to say yes to ask God to give you the heart that wants to change ask God for a passion to grow to refuse the status quo to choose to be better than who you were yesterday so how does this guy reply let's go to verse 7 sir The invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So obviously, if this is a foot race to get into the pool, I mean, this guy has a clear disadvantage. He's not going to be able to get into the pool. And so the only way he would even be able to get into the pool is if someone physically helped him to get into the pool. So it's even more of a lost cause. And so he's feeling like... I mean, this is as deep in the, in, the, in the dumps you can get. He's a social outcast because he already has this condition. The only possible hope for change is this pool, but it's basically impossible for him to go get in because he can't walk, and no one's going to help him to get into this pool. So he feels abandoned, he feels overlooked, he feels tired, but this is the only shot he's got, so he's just hanging out here. He's on the brink of giving up, and what he doesn't recognize here in this moment is that his solution right here is not the pool, but it's Jesus who is standing right in front of him, and Jesus hasn't given up on him. What he needed was Jesus standing right in front of him. You know, this man, I think is such a, uh, a jarring image, uh, but I think is exactly what so many people do today. We are banking our whole life on this chance to do this one thing. It might not be to, be, to get into a pool, but our, our, maybe it's a lucrative career. Maybe it's a, an exhilarating hobby. Maybe it's a chance to travel somewhere. Maybe it's a marriage relationship. We're banking our whole lives, and we're saying, if I just get this one thing, if I can just sit here and wait for this one thing to happen, then everything will be transformed. Then I'll finally get what I want. But oftentimes, we can't get the thing we want. We're just waiting around and it's not coming along. And so we feel abandoned. We feel tired. We feel overlooked. We just feel like nothing is going our way. And we feel like we've given up. And what we don't realize is that what we needed all this time is Jesus. And he's standing right there. And he's asking us, do you want to get well? So let's keep going. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now this is fascinating to me because sometimes you, you read in the, in the Gospels that Jesus, he refuses to perform a miracle in a certain town because of the lack of faith. And I look at this example and I wonder, what kind of faith does this man have? And it seems like it was zero it seemed like he had zero faith. He didn't initiate a conversation with Jesus. He didn't give Jesus good answers. He demonstrated a, a, a lack of confidence, a lack of hope. He didn't demonstrate faith. There's nothing this guy did to deserve healing. There's nothing this guy did that separates him from all these other folks who are in the same room, who also need healing. You know, Jesus would later say, In John 5, 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. You know, from our perspective, sometimes it seems like there's no rhyme or reason for why God does what he does. There's no rhyme or reason to why Jesus healed this person but not that person. There was nothing that warranted healing out of this person's character. Sometimes it seems like God heals those who deserve it the least those who wanted the least, and those who even cared the least. Um, but we'll get back to that. So what we're doing is we're just diving through the text. We're just pulling out these interesting nuggets, and at the end we're going to tie everything up in a bow, okay? Let's keep going. Starting from the uh, second half of verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Okay, it shows where their priorities are. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. All right, so so let's set aside the Sabbath day for a minute. We'll get back to that. But catch verse 12 and 13. These guys ask, who told you to take up your mat and walk? And it says he didn't even know. Okay, this is bewildering to me. This man had probably the best day of his life, he, was, he, he couldn't walk for 38 years, he finally got this chance to walk, he can walk now, and he doesn't even know who this guy is. Now if, now if you're listening, I think this is powerful for us, because if you're listening and you are not a follower of Jesus, I think this text should give you, it should blow your mind, because what this means is sometimes God can do a work in your life and radically transform you without even you knowing who he is. You can be minding your own business, you can be doing your own thing, you can be just hanging out, you don't have a, a care, a single care about who God is, who Jesus is, you don't think about going to church, you can do, you can just be minding your own business, and Jesus can just show up in your life and like that change everything and you still won't even know who he, who he was. God can flip your script upside down, turn your whole life upside down, and you won't even realize it. Okay, so let's summarize so far. Okay, so this man, is unable to walk. He had certain expectations for his life, all right? Most likely, his life wasn't going to go anywhere. Most likely, uh, he he wasn't going to amount to anything. But there was this slight chance that things could change, and that was this angel in the pool business. So he was going to hang out here, spend his whole life here, Maybe the angel would show up, and maybe he would somehow win this foot race, and maybe he, somehow he would win, and maybe he would get healed. Okay, So that was his life. That was his theological grid. But then the stranger comes up to him, someone he doesn't even know. He has no clue who this guy is. Guy is. Okay, he asks him if he wants to get well, and then he says, hey, why don't you take up your mat and, and walk? And so he could have thought, okay, who is this guy? I don't know this guy. This doesn't fit my theological grid. You don't look like an angel. Okay, you're not even dipping your foot in the water. There's, not, there's no stirring in the water. Why would I listen to you? That's exactly what he could have thought. That would be a very natural, natural way of reasoning. But instead, what did he do? He said, maybe my theological grid is wrong. Maybe this crazy thing that this person is saying could work. I'm just gonna give it a try. And so he decides, I'm going to stand up, pick up my, wa- my mat, and walk. And it actually works. And in that moment, he realizes his view of God was too small. That God could work in a way outside of his prior theological grid. God could work outside of his expectations. Okay, So that's the first example, the man with the mat who couldn't walk. All right, let's talk about this next party, the Jewish leaders. Verse 14 to 18, later... Jesus found him at the temple, said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So now he learned who this guy is. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, Let's talk about these Jewish leaders, all right? Okay, so this is mind-blowing. Jesus literally heals this dude. He's been an, unable to walk for 38 years. You'd think these religious leaders, they're supposed to be representatives of, representatives of God, okay? They're supposed to be on God's side. They, you'd think they'd be overjoyed, but instead they go, you know what, let's try to kill this guy. Let's try to kill this guy who just healed this man, all right? Why? Okay, We're provided with two reasons. One, because Jesus broke the Sabbath. And two, because Jesus called God his own father. And here is a clear example also of people who had a theological grid, a certain understanding of who God was, and they saw Jesus, and they go, okay, this guy doesn't fit our theological grid, so this guy must be an enemy of God. That was a natural conclusion. This guy isn't keeping the Sabbath, according to our expectations. This guy isn't interacting with the father according to our expectations. And so, therefore, this person is an imposter or an enemy or or someone we got to get rid of. That was their conclusion. Their view of God was also too small. They didn't recognize that God could work outside of their expectations. And because of that, they were eventually responsible for killing God's own son. You know, it's sad you know, this isn't just isolated to this text. This has happened throughout church history or or just human history. It's sad that sometimes the greatest enemy of God is the people of God. The greatest enemies of God, the people who oppose God the most, are the people who think they're doing God's work, but they're actually not. Every generation has had these people, from the Old Testament to the New Testament to today. You have these self-appointed, border guards of God's kingdom. That's what I like to call them. Okay, there are these, no one asks them to be these border guards, but they just appoint themselves to be border guards, and they think they are responsible for saying who's in and who's out, who's following God, who's not, who's on God's side and who's not, and they're often wrong. They're often kicking people out of God's kingdom when these people are actually doing God's work. And they might do it out of good intention sometimes, but oftentimes the reason why they do this is because at the core, their view of God is too small. They have this theological grid of God, of who God is, and they cannot fathom that God could do things outside of the grid. You know, what I love about Jesus' ministry is that he is so unpredictable. He's almost always working outside of somebody's grid, somebody's expectations. You know, and and sometimes he even does things one way you know, here and he does something another way there. You know, one time he's healing someone who's blind and he puts mud on their eyes, okay? Another time he he heals someone who's blind and he spits in their eyes. You might think, I'm just putting myself in this guy's shoes, okay? Okay, you're spitting on my eyes? Is that, that's kind of gross, okay? (laughs) Is this protocol? But that's what Jesus does sometimes. He does weird things sometimes and it's unpredictable, all right? You know, one time a crowd tries to make him king and he refuses, he goes hide in the mountains. And another time, a crowd tries to make him king, and he goes along with it. You know, he rides a donkey in Jerusalem, and they're they hailing him as king. And you might wonder, why did he say no over here and yes over here? But that's what Jesus does sometimes. He's kind of unpredictable. You know, again, I mentioned this earlier. Sometimes people have zero faith, and so he doesn't do any miracles. Sometimes other people have zero faith, and he heals them. Also, he's unpredictable. Sometimes he goes to the temple, and he's teaching people stuff, and sometimes he goes to the temple, and he's flipping tur- tables over. right and so if you're looking at him from afar if you're a jewish religious leader at the time okay you might go okay this guy is a weird dude all right he's he seems to be living kind of inconsistently all right it seems like he's hanging out with prostitutes he seems like he was born out of wedlock wedlock it seems like you know he's reinterpreting the scriptures in progressive ways okay he's he's making a mess in the temple All of these things would not fit your theological grid and it would be very natural for you to conclude this guy is not the son of God. That would be a very natural conclusion. And sometimes I wonder, if I was a religious leader at the time, would I have had the same conclusion? Because Jesus was doing things that would be very odd to me. He was operating outside of my expectations. He would not probably fit my expectations for a messiah for a son of God. You know, over the past several years, um, for a variety of reasons, you know, I've had a lot of conversations, read a lot of books, and I think gradually, I've been finding myself to be having more of what I would call a humble theology. And what a humble theology is, basically, you say, this is what I think, this is what I believe, this is what I think the Bible teaches, but I'm open to the fact that I may be wrong. And I'm open to the fact that God may do things out of my expectations. Um, I'm not saying be wishy-washy. I'm not saying be compromised. I'm not saying, like, you know, don't take stances. I'm saying just have this humility to be able to say, maybe God can do things that I don't expect. Maybe God can work in ways that I can't predict, and maybe sometimes God can catch me off guard. Maybe I don't have all of God figured out. You know, sometimes we think theological certainty is like the highest of virtues. You know, theological certainty meaning like, this is what I believe, and I'm never going to question it. And I'm always going to debate people over it, and I'm going to show you why I'm right and you're wrong. It's almost like the more certain we are, the stronger our faith is. But I think sometimes the opposite is true. Theological humility sometimes requires a lot of faith, because it requires us to say, you know what, I don't have everything figured out. I don't have God figured out. I don't know everything, but I'm going to trust in God anyways. I'm going to rely on him anyways, because he's the one in charge, not me. He has everything figured out, not me. He has all the facts, not me. And even though I don't understand everything, I'm still going to say, may your will be done, not mine. I think sometimes that takes even more faith. You know, I want to invite you to consider the ways your view of God may be too small. Maybe you identify with this man laying at the pool and you're just waiting for help and you're sort of on the edge, the verge of giving up. Maybe your view of God is too small. Maybe he is the one waiting for you to stand up. Maybe he's right there. The solution is right there. And he's invited you to take up your mat and walk. And maybe this way of healing is different than what you would have imagined. Maybe the approach is different, maybe the timing is different, maybe there's aspects about it that's different, but maybe God is right there. Maybe you need to open your eyes and see that God is waiting for you. Or maybe you identify with these religious leaders, you have a very specific idea of who God is and what he does. Your systematic theology is on point. If you were to take a test, you would get an A+, all right? But maybe because of that, you judge people and criticize people who don't do things the way you would. You look at how other Christians practice their faith, how other people do church, how other people interpret the Bible, and you sort of shake your head in disappointment. Consider whether God may be working in those spaces as well. Consider maybe your view of God is too small. Maybe your theological tribe doesn't have a monopoly on God, and he can work in ways you don't expect.